Father, thank you for Neil. Thank you for um, his good exegetical preparation. Um, <laughs> Father, I just pray that what you have prepared in his heart, it will just, the, the seeds will land tonight, Lord. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll go before us um, and that you'll just prepare our hearts as much as you go before him tonight and just help him communicate your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Stephen. Also did all kinds of other preparation, like beyond exegetical. Um, so, little known fact about me. I suffer from motion sickness. Anybody else in the room? Yeah. Okay. My whole life, it's been terrible. Um, for those of you who don't know, motion sickness is horrible. Okay, it leaves you feeling nauseous and doing very embarrassing things when um, it gets too much. Uh, but one of the things I've learned about motion sickness, and apparently it's a little bit different for different people, but maybe you'll learn something free, fellow sufferers, is one of the reasons you get motion sickness is that there's a dissonance in your senses. So for me particularly, it's quite visual. So if, if we're driving, and I'm not driving, uh, and my eyes tell me we're going this way, but the car turns or I feel alternative motion, it, my senses go dissonant. They're not uh, doing the same thing. They're not congruent. And then uh, my body decides to be nauseous, or in just good old-fashioned Afrikaans, nar. Okay. Um, I'm okay on planes because your senses are kind of confined, and you, know, you look at the screen in front of you, and it feels like you're going that way, and then you're all right. Um, boats. <clears throat> I was in a harbor once, and the boat was doing this. That's as much as I could do. Um, and then I got nar. But sometimes we... I want to use it as a bit of an analogy. One of the ways that you help yourself get over motion sickness, particularly if you're driving, is if you can open the window and you can get wind on you because then there's more senses that are telling you which way you're going, particularly if you put your hand out the window like a freak or politely. Uh, you put your hand out and you feel the wind. It helps bring the senses into line because then your body gets more stimuli telling you which way you're actually going. Is that Okay. And, but, by way of analogy, sometimes we have a faith, our Christian faith, that is actually suffers from, motion, that suffers from motion sickness. We believe one thing, but perhaps we experience something else. Or we believe one thing and we perhaps live a little bit different to what we believe. And then we end up confused. Uh, we end up feeling out of step. We ask questions like, does my faith work? Or why doesn't this work? Or how does God speak into situations like um, slavery and things like that? We, we start finding a dissonance between our faith and our lived experience. And so we end up being nar Christians. We end up just not feeling well and feeling like this uh, works well. And so in our series that we're busy with, which we launched last week, which we're calling Arise and Shine, it's based on the first three verses of Isaiah chapter 60, which has been in the Bible for thousands of years, but we feel that God spoke to us to say, this is a word for us at Hatfield at this time. It's a time for us to stand up and reflect, shine, reflect God's glory in this season. And one of the ways that we want to learn to do that, how do we arise, how do we reflect God's glory, is we're going to be studying through the book of James until the end of the year. And James probably... Uh, is one of the earlier books written in the New Testament. There's a bit of debate, but um, Pastor Louis this morning said he believes it's early, and I also believe it's early, so I think I'm right. Um, 
But James is very focused on this practical living. James is a little bit about that if you're driving, you're going down your journey of life and you stick your hand out the window, James tells you how to bring your faith into alignment, how to bring congruence to how you, between what you believe and what you act, between what you believe and how you can take action into certain spaces. And so we want a faith that is real world. We want a faith that is robust. We want a faith that helps us deal with reality. And James takes a couple of very concrete, practical things that it helps us address and helps us align our faith with reality. For most of us in the room, well, not us, for those younger people in the room, I'm not one of us anymore, shall I say under 30s, and probably for all of us to some extent, the world we're living in is only going to get more complex, not less, which means that our faith needs to find ways to deal with that complexity. And in my life, I've had the privilege of as, have, having certain times and moments in my journey where as I've exercised my faith, I've found out that my faith can stand. When I've engaged with difficult things and counter-opinions and perhaps different philosophies and people with real hard questions, I found that my faith can stand. And James is going to help us anchor our faith. And that's why it's so important also that we preach and teach, that we try our best from the Bible, because when my faith is linked to the Word of God, when my faith rests on Scripture, I can stand stronger. I have a space, a foundation from which I can move into the places that God has called us for. So we're going to read in James chapter 1 tonight. So if you have devices, we'll get there shortly. But to help us get proper context for the rest of the series, but also particularly some of the things we're going to read tonight, it's helpful just to understand a little bit about the book of James. Because it's an early writing, his focus is not so much theologically. It's probably written maybe 15 to 20 years after Jesus had died. And so it's quite early in the faith. It's largely, not largely, it's written for a Christian Jewish audience. So Jewish people of the Jewish race who believed the Jewish faith, who then believed in Jesus. So they became what we call Messianic Jews or simply Christian, Jew, Jewish Christians or Christians who happened to be Jewish. James has written to these people who are actually scattered all over the Roman Empire. Most scholars would agree that the James that is spoken about here is Jesus' half-brother. Same mom, different dad, okay, in case you're wondering. Uh, Jesus' half-brother, and so obviously he was well acquainted with the life of Jesus, but he became, as we read chapters in Acts, like Acts chapter 15, we realize that James, Jesus' half-brother, became the leader in the church in Jerusalem. And so obviously he was concerned with Jewish Christians, and he writes this letter probably not just for the Jews in Jerusalem, but for Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire. As they were starting to experience some trials, some opposition for their faith in Christ. So perhaps this is a helpful way to understand it. If you went to a Roman city, not Jerusalem, uh, let's pick one. Athens. Uh, in the first century, around AD 50, probably a little bit earlier when James is written, uh, you would find in a, in a sizable Roman city a Jewish population. Um, by the rules and conventions of their day, if there were 50 Jewish men, I'm sorry, in a city, they were allowed to start a synagogue. That was kind of the, the rule of thumb that the Jewish leaders operated. They could then try and get a building and have a synagogue. And so there would be a Jewish community in all sizable cities throughout the Roman Empire because they'd, 
scattered in trade and business and different things had taken him to different places. But in a city that was maybe a couple hundred thousand or thousands big, the Jewish community would have been a smaller community. It would have been a marginalized community within the bigger community. In fact, we know that the Romans thought they were rather strange because they only worshipped one God, weirdos. And they didn't practice, live the way the Romans lived. They lived by a different moral code. They had different standards that they lived by. And so they were kind of outsiders. But at least if you were a Jewish person in this Jewish community, you had Jewish family and Jewish friends. And there were others who were like you. But now this message of Jesus starts going through the world. And maybe some had come to the Passover festival where Jesus himself was crucified, very possible, and saw about Jesus, learned about him, and, become, and came to believe in him. And so within this Jewish community, you start even getting a smaller group. So it's a minority within a minority. And they are now starting to be realized, the, the, the Jewish people around them are starting to realize, well, they're different too. They're not like us anymore. They don't want to practice the laws of Moses. They just want to follow Jesus. And they don't follow our customs anymore. They start to believe different. They start to think different. They're starting to act a little bit differently from us as well. They're definitely believing differently. And so these Jewish Christians are starting to get ostracized from their own community. So this minority within the minority is getting, starting to suffer. They're starting to experience tests. They're starting to experience trials in their faith. You see, if you were part of the Jewish community, uh, if you sold Jewish goods, you had a market. Fellow Jewish people would buy your goods because they were kosher. But now you come to the Christian faith and you start living differently and suddenly they start whispering about you. And, you know, there's that weirdo and there's the one that believes in Jesus and there's the one that doesn't want to come to uh, the synagogue on the Sabbath anymore and there's the one who's praying differently. And there's the one who's just going over the top in their faith now. Maybe those words are familiar. And so they don't do business with you anymore. And they don't invite you to the birthday parties anymore. And they don't want you, their children to play with your children. And so these early Jewish Christians were starting to experience being ostracized. Maybe you felt like that. Maybe you felt like a minority within a minority. If you've ever been on a university campus, some of you are on university campuses, how funny is it to stand for Jesus on a university campus? Are you in danger of being ostracized if you stand up and say, well, you know, I don't drink, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do? Okay. Are you in danger in the workplace where maybe everyone's going one way and people are taking bribes and doing business by taking bribes, but you don't because of your faith? Because of your testimony in Jesus and you start being ostracized and suddenly they don't invite you to the meetings and you don't get, you know, when everyone sits in class in the cafeteria at the university, you, you know, it's the Christians outside. And, and so we sometimes have these experiences where we start being ostracized. And that's what's happening to this early, this Jewish Christian community. They're experiencing definitely economic pressure. And you'll see through the book of James, he comes back to this topic of being rich and being poor, because probably most of the people that were reading this, not all, were experiencing some form of loss and persecution. They were suffering. They were undergoing trials. They're battling economically, because particularly in the first century, uh, your business was done by your, your relational network, by your 
trade guilds and who you, know, who you knew and how you could do the deals. Some would say it's still very much the same today as well. And so these Jewish Christians were facing a very real pressure. It would have been much easier for them to leave the Christian faith and say, it's okay, I'm not going to be a Jesus freak. I'm going to just conform and I'm going to be part of the Jewish community and I'm going to be accepted back and I'll just go with the flow. And I don't want to be ostracized. And so I'll end up basically compromising what I believe. It's much easier in life to go with the flow and to conform when the majority around you is doing things differently or that you know to be wrong. Because as soon as you stand up, you maybe don't even have to go upstream, you just have to stand, and that's when you start experiencing the pressure. You start experiencing what James calls the testing of your faith. You start experiencing trials when people come to you and they say, why don't you do this, and why aren't you like us, and why are you so weird? These things start happening. When you start saying, I don't tolerate everything. Some things are right and some things are wrong. It's not everything that goes. Anyone of you tried that on a university campus recently? The worst thing you can be is intolerant in the world. It's like a sin to be intolerant. It's always amazing how intolerant the tolerant people are of intolerant people. It's a logical fallacy, by the way. And so James tells us that what you believe and how you practice your faith have to go hand in hand. You can't believe one thing and perhaps practice a little bit differently so that you can get the business deals or you can't speak one way here and a different way there. James gets very in our faces and very practical about some of these things. So let's read some of the all 12 verses in James together, first chapter of James, and then we'll break it down and we'll look at some of the specific things that James says into this space. So James writes, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered amongst the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but rich, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will all pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises and, it with, and with scorching heat it withers the plant. Its blossoms fail and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Having stood the test, that person will receive a crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So let's jump right in and try and go through paragraph by paragraph. So, Basically, verse 1, James just says he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's writing to this Jewish audience that's scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Just as an aside, often people say that this idea about the resurrection of Jesus and the lordship of Jesus is something that developed much later in history. I want to tell you, if your half-brother refers to you that he serves you and you're the Lord, something's happened. So James knows Jesus. He knows that something's happened with the, 
with a boy, the man he grew up with, that makes it not ordinary. He understands really that Jesus came back from the dead. It's an early witness within 15 years of Jesus' life that there was this very clear understanding that Jesus was Lord and that he had been risen from the dead. But that's a different message. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This word consider, some of the more literal translations will say reckon. It's an interesting word. It literally means you need to think about this in this way. You need to think about trials and oppositions and things that you face differently. Don't think of them as evil. Don't think of them as uncommon and abnormal. You need to think of them as pure joy. Now that, I want you to know, is not always so easy. How many of you have faced a trial that was just absolutely not pure joy? And what James is starting to say is you need to start thinking about trials differently. You not just need to start thinking about opposition and things that where it feels like you're walking upstream and not with the stream. Start thinking. Consider them differently. Consider them as pure joy. Why should you do that? Because, you'll tell us later, there's a reward. There's something that you will get by going through a trial and not around a trial that you'll never get any other way. Consider, reckon, think of trials differently. It says, and the NIV translation is quite good here, it says trials of different kinds or trials of many kinds. This is a great description. It means trials that are internal. The word that's used here can mean trials that are internal. So you're wrestling with something inside that's challenging your faith. For some of those first century Christians, it's, I can't give my children what I want to give them because I'm losing my business. That's a trial. It's an internal trial. What do I do? How do I provide for my family? Maybe it's an internal trial that's about temptation. And so this word is very broad. It's trials of many kinds. In fact, you could probably say a trial of any kind. Anything that comes to you that you experience as a trial, James is writing and says, think differently about it. Think of it as a joyful thing, as a good thing, not as a bad thing. Now, probably this kind of internal trial is what James talks about from verse 13 onwards in the chapter. So a little bit more of that next week. He talks about where these internal trials come from. But here it seems his focus is a little bit more on the external trials because he talks a little bit about the rich and the poor. And so this word is a broad word. It means any kind of trial, whether it's generated internally, whether it's coming at you from the outside externally. Think of these trials, these afflictions, this testing that you're going through. Think of it as a good thing. Think of it as, how do I find Jesus in this? Think of it this way. When you pray, I think it's fine to pray and you say, Lord, this is difficult. Can you deliver me from it? Can you rescue me from this trial? You know, Jesus prayed that. Lord, this cross, if there's any other way, can we do that? But not what I want, what? You want. And so I think it's fair to say, Lord, is this something you want me to rescue me from? Or is this something you want me to go through? And if Jesus says go through, then he's going to help you go through it. He'll be with you. In that process. So count it pure joy, if you, the, the more literal translation would say, pleasure in your progress. Because as you stand in the trial, and as you realize, I'm living out my faith here, my faith 
is standing in this space. I'm not wobbling, I'm not getting confused, and maybe I am wobbling, but I'm really trusting God to help me, and he's giving me wisdom, which we'll talk about now. And he's going to make a way, he's going to give me a strategy to overcome this, or he's going to give me the energy, the power, the ability that I need to go through it, to stand. And then I start seeing my faith can handle this. My faith can handle this pressure that's coming from outside. My faith can handle these adverse opinions and these people that are telling me I'm intolerant and these people that are going, you're just a weirdo who believes in old-fashioned things. And you go, but my faith can stand. And that's when you pleasure in the journey. Because when your faith stands, you become mature, complete, and lacking nothing. Mature, this, the, the phraseology has this idea that you're well-rounded, that there's not anything missing. And so there's this idea that if you don't go through certain trials, there can be gaps in your armor. There's gaps in your development. It's like you missed grade two maths and then you're trying to do grade five or something. There's a gap if you don't go through it. James talks about perseverance because when we go through it with a wholehearted devotion, when we go through it and that says, I'm going to hold on to Jesus no matter what, no matter what's coming at me, I'm going to find my way through this, it's important. This morning, Pastor Louis shared an example of how you, if you, it's a bit like getting a driver's license. How many of you know to get the reward of driving around and paying your own petrol and all those wonderful things, you have to pass a test. And some of us have to do that test a couple of times before we get the reward. And so sometimes in, in our Christian faith, we need to stand and say, I'm not going to take that bribe, or I'm not going to offer the bribe, or I'm not going to pay cash and you don't give me an invoice and a receipt. I'm not going to do that so that you can experience the reward. And the pressures are real. I'm not trying to make it easy. When you're the only one in your class that's standing for Christ, when you're the only one who's not getting dropped down dead drunk every Saturday night and Everyone thinks you're strange. When you're the only one in your business saying, I will pay and there will be an invoice. And I'm not going to pay you a consulting fee or a contract reward or whatever they call these things these days. That's hard. Let's not fool ourselves. That's hard. But I want you to hear tonight, your faith can stand in those places because you never stand alone. Jesus stands with you. Let's read on. Verse 5, how do we go through these trials? How can we take pleasure in the progress? How do we get through it? Very simple, according to James, he says. If you lack wisdom, just ask. If anyone lacks wisdom, if you don't know what to do, if you don't know how to take what you know about Jesus, what you've learned in your faith, and you don't know how to translate that into this trial that you're facing, this temptation that's threatening to overcome you. If you don't know how to take what you've heard in church on Sunday and live it out on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, if you don't know how, ask for wisdom. Wisdom is knowing not only knowledge, but some practical common sense about how and when to apply. If any of you lacks wisdom, just ask. <laughs> Sounds so simple. You should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of a sea blown and tossed by the wind. 
That person, the doubter, should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Two things God does, two things we must do. God gives generously. That's what James says. If you ask, he'll give generously, or you could also translate it freely. God wants to give you the wisdom that you need to go through the trial. He's not the spiteful old man sitting there going, let me see how tough you are. Let me see how clever you are. If you ask, he gives generously. He gives freely. Because what he loves it when we turn to him. He loves it when we say to him, Father, my faith, I, don't know, I know what I believe, I know you're real, and I know what I've learned in the Bible, but I don't know how it works here. God loves it when we ask him for wisdom. So he gives generously. It's the nature of who he is. He's a good father who wants to give good gifts to his children. So when we come, we must know that he wants to give us wisdom. You don't have to wonder, does God want to answer this prayer? He wants to give you the wisdom that you need. Second thing, God gives without, uh, the NIV translates it, um, without finding fault. Okay, he gives without considering your past missteps. Perhaps in the past you've tried to face the trial, but you did it in your own strength and in your own ability with your own clever ideas. Or maybe you just gave in and went with the flow. When you turn to him and you ask, he doesn't count that against you. Isn't that wonderful? He gives freely. He will not reckon it against you. No matter what you've done, no matter what your past missteps are, no matter what, if you turn to him with a sincere heart, we'll see that now, He wants to give you the wisdom, and he won't find fault in that request. It's that simple. If you're facing a trial, ask for wisdom. God wants to tell you, and he's not going to first go, well, remember that last time, or my favorite one, you always do this. God's not. I'm like that with my daughter. It's terrible. I'm not, I think she's scared to ask me stuff anymore. Anyway. But when I go and ask, God, how do I parent here? This is a trial. This is a challenge at the moment. We're doing okay at the moment, by the way. But if it were to ever happen that she becomes a teenager. Um, she's 10 now. She's going to jump to 30. I know it. Okay. But God, give me wisdom. How do I do this? And he won't go, oh, you were really rotten the other day. He gives freely without reckoning your mistakes, without reckoning faults. So God gives generously and he doesn't reckon your faults. But what do we need to do? We need to ask with confidence. Okay, simply ask. It's a bit like Hebrews eleven six, where it says, if you come to God, you need to believe that he is. So when I ask, I need to say, I'm expecting that he will answer. I need to have confidence to go, he will answer. So I need to ask with confidence. But very importantly, I must not be of two minds, is the literal Greek, double-minded. What does it mean to be double-minded? We need to go back to the first century to help us understand this a little bit. The Jewish believers that James is writing to, they were wrestling with, do I conform to the, my familiar pattern? Can I just go back to being Jewish? Then at least they'll buy my bread and they'll be nice to my kids and we'll get invited to the parties again. Do I go back to that? Or do I stand for Christ and experience Ostracism. Do I stand for Christ and experience the opposition? Do I stand for Christ and experience 
probably literal economic hardship for them. And so if they were in this place where they've got one foot about going back or staying in familiar, one foot about conforming and one foot about do I follow Jesus, that's what it means to be of two minds. My mind is do I do this or do that? And if you ask with, well, let me test this Christian thing, you're double-minded. You have to commit. You have to say, I'm in. Jesus, it's your way. God, it's your way. It's your wisdom I want, not my own wisdom. I don't want the wisdom of my culture, my society, my teachers. I want your wisdom. And it's in your heart, you have to, the great word is pre-commit. God, it's, it's your way or no way. God, if, you're not, if I don't get your wisdom, I'm not doing it any other way except by your wisdom. And so God will answer you, but you need to want his answer. And only his answer. Is that okay? You don't go, well, I'm going to try this and see. That doubter, the double-minded man, will get nothing. I'll read the Bible to you. They should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. And so sometimes as we face trials, let's just be real-world faith here. Sometimes what we really just need to do in our hearts is become single-minded. And my language is intentional. In your heart, you need to become single-minded. You need to reckon. You need to say, I'm going to do what God wants. I'm not, <laughs> this might be comfortable. I'll make my sales target if I pay the commission. You need to settle in your heart. I'm not doing that. I'm going God's way. And then when that is settled, you say, God, give me wisdom. And then he's going to freely, freely, generously give you the wisdom that you need. So if you're facing a trial, settle your heart to be single-minded. Single-minded simply means you're going God's way. You're not having one foot here and one foot there. You're not riding. It's not even actually about riding the fence. It's about being thinking, is this going to work better or is that going to work better? Am I going to go the world's way or am I going to go God's way? So we cannot be of two minds. Cannot be trying to decide between faith, being a person of faith and being a person of the world. The picture here, by the way, as you read James, the, the pictures, if you can, they're quite phenomenal. You can't be like the wave on the sea that's blown by the wind. Someone who's double-minded, it's very simple. Whichever way the wind is blowing, that's the way they're going. So they don't experience trials. They're like... That's because that's how a wave works, unlike the Sea of Galilee. If the wind is blowing this way, the waves happily chop this way. And if the wind changes, that's a double-minded person. The Christian says, doesn't matter which way the wind is blowing, I'm going God's way. Now James does something very interesting in the text. And I'm not going to get massively into it tonight because at least in two other places as we study James, he's going to talk about the rich and the poor. But perhaps if I can just create a conceptual framework, it's interesting for me. I don't know if I fully get it, but James is talking about trials and being single-minded and not being double-minded. Then he drops in this little paragraph about the rich and the poor. And I'll tell you, can I tell you up front why I think he puts that in here? Because in verse 12, he goes back and he says, if you face trials and you win, there's a reward. So this rich and poor idea is kind of a little strange. I think part of why James puts it here is it doesn't matter if you're poor, it doesn't matter if you're rich, you're going to face trials. Your socioeconomic status doesn't exempt you from trials. Maybe it's more obvious for the poor. Let's read the text. Believers in humble circumstances, the poor, 
ought to take pride in their high position because in Christ, you're rich. In Christ, you're elevated. In Christ, you have a different identity from what's defined. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation. This would be the rich believer, by the way. Um, you'll see we're going to read about another kind of rich person in a few verses. Uh, James actually uses a different Greek word to make sure we understand he's talking about a different group of people. But the rich believer should take pride in their humiliation because I've identified with Christ. Since they, probably more their wealth, will pass away like a wild flower. For just like the sun rises with scorching heat and it withers a plant, its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich unbeliever, it's a different category of rich, will fade away even while they go about their business. When I come to Christ, my identity is defined by my association with Jesus. My identity is defined as being a son or a daughter of God. My identity is not defined by wealth. My identity is not defined by whether I'm poor or whether I'm rich. I think everyone here understands that poverty and wealth are relative concepts. Okay? Um, Mark Zuckerberg, he's wealthy, right? Facebook guy. I've heard of him. Don't, never met him. Everyone okay? Is he rich? Billions. Dollars. Okay? So... As far as I would understand, everybody in this room compared to Mark Zuckerberg, relative to Mark Zuckerberg, is poor. Okay. But compared to somebody else, perhaps who's living on the street, we're all rich. If you compare, it's interesting, Google it at some stage if you want to, 200 years ago, 1820. Okay. If they, they, they did a study... Um, Generally, they say, you know, extreme poverty, I think, is if you have less than $2 a day. Chandra, is that about, sound about right? Sorry for putting you on the spot. Chandra, no, sorry. <laughs> Often they'll say people who live in extreme poverty, the UN, places like that, say that if someone has less than $2 a day, so what's that about? 26, 28 rand, let's say 30 rand. If you have less than 30 rand a day to live off you, in extreme poverty. Okay. 200 years ago, guess what percentage of the world... I don't know how they worked this out, but lived, less, lived on less than $2 a day. Anybody? In 1820, 94% of people who lived, lived with less than $2 a day. Only 6% of the people were even middle class and wealthy. Okay? In around 2015, only 10% of the world lived with, under, with less than $2 a day. Roughly, these figures change and it always depends where you go. So, point I'm just trying to make by quoting irrelevant statistics is that poverty and wealth are a relative thing. It's far more helpful to think of poverty and wealth not in money terms but in power terms. Because one thing that's interesting about the poor is they never have power. Uh, there's great work by organizations like World Vision that speak into this space about empowering the poor, because that's the way they come out of poverty. But what's James talking about? James is not saying that the poor are pious. Pious means holy. He's not saying, but the P's work, okay? He's not saying that the poor are pious. To be poor is to be more holy, and the wealthy are wicked. That's not James's point. Although if you read, it seems that the people he's engaging with are experiencing more the poverty side of things, or they've lost wealth because of their choice 
to follow Christ. So James is not saying that the poor are pious and the wealthy are wicked. What he is saying is that those things can't define you. When the poor person comes to Christ, they're elevated. They become rich by their identification, by their association with Jesus. When the wealthy person comes to Christ, he or she has to realize that they're not defined in terms of their wealth anymore. Because you see, in a society, particularly the first century society, if you had wealth, you had status. Not much has changed in certain circles. And that helps define you, doesn't it? But Christianity has this radical idea that you're not defined by your bank balance. You're defined by your association with Christ. And if you're associated with Christ, you will experience trials. And that's the point James is trying to land here. Is that when we associate with Christ, it doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. But to the unrepentant rich, James does, and he's going to get into them a little bit more later in his letter. To the unrepentant rich, to the unbeliever, he says, your wealth is going to go like that. If there's a non-compassionate use of wealth, to use different language, James warns you. So your status doesn't exempt you from trials. I think that's why James goes to this example. But verse 12, there's this reward. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive a crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who, interesting, love him. And this is a very interesting concept that James introduces in this place. For those who persevere, if you can keep asking God for wisdom, keep having the courage to do what he says, there's a reward. Not only do you get to know Jesus and he's with you in that trial in a way that you would never have got to know him if you hadn't gone through the trial. But there's also a reward for those who love him. The crown of life for those who love him. And I want to say this, if we want to persevere, if we want the courage to persevere, if we want to go through the trial, we need to love more, not less. Because isn't it interesting when we face trials, in our weaker moments, I, I do, I know you never do this, you go, God, do you really love me? If you loved me, <laughs> you wouldn't let me be here. You wouldn't let me be experienced. If you loved me, ne you've never done that. You were wonderful. But isn't it that we start wondering if we're loved when we go through opposition and difficulties? But if we can, in our hearts, say, God, I'm going to love you more. I'm going to keep loving you even though everybody thinks I'm an idiot for believing in you. I'm going to keep loving you even though I can't get ahead as quickly as others because I'm not prepared to pay that bribe. I'm going to keep loving you. And so I think if we can focus on loving better, we'll be able to endure better. We'll be able to persevere better. If I can focus on loving when I'm in the trial, I think I'll come through it better. So what's the Lord saying to us tonight? Perhaps you're going through a trial, whether it's internal, an internal wrestle that you're wrestling. Perhaps it's really external for you. It's just strong wind that's coming against you. Be single-minded. Set your heart to love Jesus as hard as you can and as best as you know how. And then just ask for wisdom. Simply ask and he'll give it to you. You're facing a business challenge. Lord, give me wisdom. The others are getting ahead because they're making crooked deals. Give me wisdom. How do, how do I succeed, dear Lord? 
How do I love you in this? And help me to know and experience your love in this space. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. It says, we have treasures in jars of clay. Each of us, we're just, in that sense, jars of clay. We're human. We're frail. We face trials. But we have the Spirit of God in us, this treasure. The power of God, this relationship we have with Jesus, is our treasure. And why has God chosen to work this way? So that his all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. It's when we go through trials that we learn it's about him and not about me. And so perhaps you're facing trials tonight. Step one, set your heart to be single-minded, to love God, to go his way. But this is also the absolute joy and wonder and privilege of being part of a Christian community. Where we have brothers and sisters who know what it's like to go through trials. Way beyond theory. Who know how sometimes challenging it can be to live God's wisdom and not. And that's why when we gather together as a church like this, we can stand and we can pray for one another. To have the faith to go through the trial. To stand in the storm. And not to be blown over. And so if you have the liberty, I'd like to invite you, if you're facing a trial tonight in your life of any kind, why don't you stand and as a community of believers, let's pray together that we can go through the trial and receive the reward that the Lord has for us. Why don't you stand and then we'd like to pray. If you're not standing and you have the liberty, won't you just pray for those around you um, who are standing? By the way, and don't look around, but you would note that most people are standing because trial is it's part of life. It's, and God doesn't give us a faith to escape us from trial. He gives us a faith that deals with reality. So, Father, we do not want to be double-minded people. Perhaps, Lord, we've let our love for you grow cold. Perhaps we've turned away from you. Perhaps we've stepped away from the faith we once, the robust faith we had. Perhaps even some have turned their backs on you, Father. But tonight, Lord, as a community and as individuals as we stand here, we turn our faces to you. We set our hearts, we set our affection on you. And as best we know how, Lord Jesus, We want to follow you alone. We don't want to be of two minds. We want to be single-minded people who love you. And then from that space, Lord, for each one standing, I simply ask, give them the wisdom they need. Freely and generously, just like James says you do. Freely and generously, Lord, give them wisdom. Perhaps even as they're standing here that they know what the next step is. Don't ask the next 10 years, the next step, Lord. Perhaps as they sleep tonight or in the week as they wrestle with that problem at work or that challenge on the campus, won't you give them the wisdom that they need, the strategy to overcome? And then as we go through these trials, Lord, our reward is that you are with us. And one day we too will receive a crown of life. 
And so help us to love you better as a people. Thank you that we have the privilege of praying with one another. Thank you that we can shine in dark times. Because when we are in trials, things can be dark. But when we ask God for wisdom and we do what he says, then we shine. We shine because it's dark. So I pray, Lord, the comfort of your spirit, but also the power of your spirit for each one to go through the trial, to stand in the storm. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. One last thought. One of the commentators I consulted as by preparing said, welcome trials because it consummates your discipleship by forcing you to exercise in practice what you have learned in Christ. So trials force you to exercise in practice what you have learned in Christ. Please join us for Connect in the functional, which is if you go out this door or that door and you walk that way. Functional is there. And if you would like some prayer, there will be some young adult leaders who will be here in the front to pray for you. Perhaps you're wrestling with being single-minded. You want to recommit your life to Christ. And perhaps even for some of you, because it's baptism tonight, it's time to get baptized because you're setting your heart and your affection on Christ. Have a good week. May God bless you every single place you go and may you know his presence and his comfort in every situation. Amen.